All right, good morning. It's great to see you here this morning at uh, Hope and Anchor Church. Uh, I'm excited to open God's Word this morning. Uh, today is uh, the third week in our Everyday People Gideon series. We're studying the life and times of Gideon in uh, the book of Judges. And uh, as is the case often with uh, narrative passages in Scripture, uh, Old Testament narratives, New Testament narratives, whatever, there's a lot there. And, uh, you know, you could really do a whole series on any given episode in you know, uh, Gideon's life or Ruth's life or, or whatever, because there's a lot of things happening. Uh, and uh, so today uh, we're going to talk about that scene in uh, Gideon's life where he's asking for, te- uh, for God to prove things, you know, with the, with the altar, the food on the altar, and then the uh, more famous example of uh, the fleece, laying the fleece before God. But in that, I want to maybe kind of like focus in a little bit more about uh, focus in more on our human tendency to doubt. Uh, but more than that, our human tendency to uh, venerate our doubts, to, to hold up our doubts as if they are the most important thing. Uh, it's really part of our human uh, bent, or, or just our human nature, I guess, to worship things. I mean, you've probably noticed that humans worship. We worship stuff. We will worship whatever's in front of us, whatever we uh, hold most dear or uh, value most highly, whether that's God or whether that's uh, money, whether that's sex, whether it's sexuality, whatever. We can turn anything into an idol that we worship. And we're going to touch on that story, too, because there's a story of Israel uh, really doing something that from this, our, our, our perch in time and space looks a little bit ridiculous. But we always have to be careful when we read in the Old Testament about Israel doing things that look ridiculous to us. Let's not focus first on them being Israel. Let's go a little bit deeper. They're human. There's something about human nature being expressed in that fickleness and that folly of Israel that we have to be very careful about because it's in us too. So let's carry that all with us as we go into this week's message, uh, which is called Golden Cows. Golden Cows. Got it? All right, good. All right, um, I'm going to start off with some uh, just uh, uncomfortable honesty from you guys on a scale of 1 to 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, I need you to think about this. How confident are you that God is with you at any given moment, especially in times of need? Think about that for a second. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that God is with you at any given moment, especially during times of need? I'm going to ask you to go ahead and hold your numbers up, okay? I'm going to hold up a, a I'm feeling good today, seven. Okay, that, I've only got one hand available, so that's the, imagine a five over here, seven. Anyone else going to hold up their hand? How confident are you on a scale of one to ten? Okay, Kenny's a ten, wow, look at that. Okay, t- all right, good, everyone, wow. I'm going to have to preach a different sermon. Um, <laughs> let me come up with something else. <laughs> Give me sermon spice. All right, um, anyway. Not everyone's a 10. Not everyone's a 10 all the time. I would think anyone that's feeling good right now that God is with you, I think there's probably been times where you're maybe a little bit uh, not as confident, maybe not feeling a 10, maybe you're feeling a little bit lower. Um, How convinced are you then also that God hears you every time you pray? That God hears you every time you pray without having to do some like elaborate mental or theological gymnastics. How many just really believe that I pray, God hears me? Man, I hope you're at a 10 there too. I mean, uh, there are times where I, my, my faith is strong and I'm, and I'm just like, 
feeling a sense of intimacy with God. And then there's times where it's like kind of that dark night of the soul that we've read about in uh, St. John of the Cross, I believe, um, where God is kind of withdrawn. It feels withdrawn from me, and He's not as present. And it's harder in those times to pray. Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like a terrible person for questioning God? Have you ever felt like kind of a, a, a bad person for doubting God, doubting that He's with you? I mean, we can really turn on ourselves sometimes. We feel bad. We feel far from God. Then we feel bad for feeling far from God. It's like we're, we're like that snake eating its tail kind of thing. You're like, ah, we're devouring ourselves with our own thinking. Sometimes we feel bad because we doubt or we question whether God is paying attention to what's going on in our lives. And that's especially when we're already feeling pretty low because times are tough or things are hard or it's just been a season of loss and pain. We can just really start to wonder, does God really care? Does He pay attention? Does He know? I think if we're honest, we all struggle sometimes with our sense of God's nearness and our ability to trust in His attentiveness and His leading. Is that fair? I mean, is that fair to say? I don't want to assume too much, but I think we all struggle with this sometimes. And that, that felt sense that God is close and God is leading me and God will provide. Uh, sometimes we struggle to believe that God is actually with us. At other times, I think we struggle to believe that God is trustworthy. Okay, so we get that He's here, but can we trust Him? Um, can we believe that what God told us is true and that it actually corresponds with reality? Can I actually live what God has told us to do and it actually lead to life, lead to uh, health and healing and wholeness? Uh, can it be trusted? Be it in uh, what is communicated to us in, in the Word and Scripture or um, through, uh, maybe it's our, uh, through our ability um, to hear and understand what He's told us. We have this deep skepticism sometimes. We just aren't going to put our full weight on it. We will read the Bible, we'll respect it, but we won't actually put our full weight into it because it's like, eh, I'm not sure. Or maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I'm not capable. Who can really know? We can start overanalyzing and becoming far too rational for our own good. And we end up uh, uh, replacing what God desires for us, which I call a hermeneutic of trust, and instead holding to a hermeneutic of skepticism. That we come with a skeptical attitude in all of our approaches to Scripture, to God, to life with God. And it starts to uh, change things. Now, for me, and maybe for you, it's tempting to look back at the Israelites in the Old Testament and see them being led so visibly and dramatically by God. You think about this in the Old Testament, I mean, God is leading them in the wilderness uh, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And there are times, especially in those inscrutable like, times, like, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how this is going to work out. What are you doing? Where are you? Do you even hear me? All these things. I look at the Israelites in the Old Testament in the wilderness being led so visibly, and I feel a little bit of envy. Like, God, why don't you do that for us? Why don't you act powerfully, undeniably? Why don't you give us a cloud by day? Why don't you give us a, a pillar of fire by night? We're in a wilderness right now. We need your help. We need your active guidance and intervention. If only we could see God's presence with us. If we could just see the waters part for once. If we could see our enemies scattered. If we could see manna fall from heaven. If we could see that water spring from the rock. It would be so refreshing. It would be so good and it would squelch all of our doubts. We can't help but think that it would be better 
to see all these things, to see God's active presence, we can't help but think that it, that would be better than this walk by faith, not by sight business that we've been consigned to, right? This, this, this following after Jesus that is really built on this idea of faith, that we walk, we follow, and we live not by sight, but by faith. Sometimes it just feels like we're left to trust only in the witness of Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we feel like that's lacking sometimes. We sometimes wonder if we couldn't just get a little bit more of the cloud and the fire instead of the inner guidance of the Holy Spirit and God's Word given to us in Scripture. Seems like it'd be so much easier, doesn't it? It'd be, it would be so much more believable if we saw God act in undeniable, definitive ways in our time, in the moment, it would be so much easier and so much more believable. But let's be honest. I have noticed that although Israel lived with a more visibly active and present God, they still didn't remain convinced and they still didn't remain steadfast in obedience. Have you read the Old Testament? They see this stuff, which you think would be so blasted convincing. And then they're like, oh, that was neat. What's next? Oh, Baal. You know? Oh, Asherah. I could get into this. Oh, a sex god? Well, that sounds way more fulfilling. Uh, you know, that sounds much more like my authentic self. You know, uh, we want to go after all the other distractions, even when God's right there. Um, they were not more faithful, more convinced. God's mighty hand brought deliverance. God's mighty hand brought, uh, provided food. God's mighty hand smote Israel's enemies. God's mighty hand opened up the ground and swallowed a band of heretics. Yet they still doubted and they still disobeyed. I don't get it. I don't get it. But like I said at the beginning, I can't, I can't, I can't give in fully to the belief that it was just something going on in Israel. I think it was something going on in them as humans. There's something about how they behaved in the presence of an active, revealed God that's indicting to me too. I'm that way too. I would do just the same thing. I would doubt and I would disobey. Exhibit A. Exhibit A. What story do I think about most when I think about seeing God move in powerful, active, undeniable ways and still yet doubting and disobeying? Exhibit A, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai uh, to meet with God, who is obviously active on Mount Sinai in lightning, smoke, clouds, and even a booming James Earl Jones type voice. Do not touch the mountain. <laughs> you know? I mean, or Morgan Freeman, whatever you're, you're fancy. But uh, they hear, they see, they know that God is there on Mount Sinai. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. But what's the problem here? Well, can you blame him? Moses is gone far longer than they expected. You know, he's up there just dilly-dallying, waiting on God to write his actual law with his finger upon the stone tablets. Uh, you know, uh, just up there hanging out with God. He's getting the Ten Commandments. God is expressing his moral will for the universe to Moses for his people, and they're down there getting antsy. Like, well, what should we do? The people of Israel got bored. They got bored just like you and I would get bored for 40 days in the desert because the Wi-Fi is terrible. Terrible in the middle of the desert. So they're bored. They're bored. So what do they do? They ask Aaron, Moses' brother, hey, give us something to worship. We've got this urge. 
I've got a fever, and the only known cure is more worship. You know, got to worship something. Give me something to worship, Aaron. And so what does Aaron do? Good old Aaron. Let's read in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. This is kind of the short part of the story, but Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. When, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. <laughs> we don't know this fellow, this guy, some Moses character. Like they don't know who this fellow, really. This fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. You see this disassociation already setting in like this guy brought us out of Egypt. Who knows? He's gone now, left us here. We need something to worship. So anyway, so Aaron said, okay. Take the gold rings from your ears, the ears of your wives and sons and daughters, and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. Then the people saw it, and they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Sweet. Fancy Moses. All right. Um, the Lord told Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf. And they have bowed down and sacrificed to it there, saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Familiar with that story? Yeah. It's a little bit weird. I mean, what? 40 days and just a little over a month and they're like, man, we need something to worship. How about a metal cow? Aaron, can you make us a metal cow? Which I know this has to do with Baal and things like that. It wasn't just like pulled out of thin air. Like, how about a penguin? You know what? Let's take a vote. Penguin? Uh, you know, or, uh, you know, what? I'm gone. Moses, what is, I mean, it records Moses' conversation, but what is he thinking as he's coming down the mountain? Like, really? I'm gone 40 days? I'm gone 40 days and you end up worshiping a metal cow. A metal cow, guys. Really? And you know the story. He makes them grind it up and mix it with water and drink it so that it's made ceremonially unclean outside the camp forever. Like, yeah, this is what your metal cow ends up getting. The old number two. But what does this tell me? That's, that wasn't in my notes, but that's true. It's a true story. You can read it. But what does this all tell me? Human beings, Israel, us, you, me, we are all very fickle. We are all given to idolatry and we are easily distracted. Easily distracted in our life with God, whether His presence is felt or not. Whether His presence feels right there or it feels very far away. We humans, we inevitably worship. We worship. We will worship. You are worshiping whether it's the Creator God of the universe whether it's a, uh, a golden cow, or maybe it's your own selfish desires, or even maybe it's your doubts. We were talking beforehand, uh, Grace and I were talking about how some people have even taken uh, their doubts as a Christian, their doubts, and made that the point of their faith instead of faith itself. That we hold up doubts as if this is the most authentic thing about what it means to follow Jesus. And we give in to that. We start worshiping, in a sense, our doubts and our disconnection and our frustrations as if those aren't intended to spur us on, to cause us to go deeper and to end up with a faith that leads 
to trust. But we can end up worshiping anything, the creator of the universe, a golden cow, our selfish desires, and even our doubts. It also tells me that struggling in our faith is real because it's so pervasive. Everybody struggles. I mean, some of you don't struggle with worshiping a golden cow. I don't in, a, in that form or shape, but we all worship stuff. We're all distracted and called aside from the worship of the one true God. Struggling in our faith is real. We find it challenging to believe and to keep on believing that God, uh, in God, we find it challenging to believe in God and to keep on believing in Him as time goes by, especially when the future is uncertain, especially when His activity is obscure and when resolution just doesn't seem likely. We don't think that God's going to come and tie this situation, this terrible, painful situation up with a bow, make it all nice and fit and make sense. If that's not going to happen, it's hard to keep believing sometimes. This is what I've noticed about us. But what should we notice about God? What should we notice about God in the midst of situations like this? What should we notice and believe about God in the midst of our issues with doubt and idolatry? I mean, God knows we struggle with this. He knows we struggle with doubt and He knows we struggle with idolatry, yet He perseveres with us. This is what, something I've noticed about God, that even though we've given Him, I've given Him, you've given Him, Israel's given Him, <laughs> we've given Him infinite reasons to abandon us and give up on us, He has stuck with us. God must be very patient with us. That's what I hold to. God has to be really patient. He must have a Father's love for us, because <laughs> He doesn't give up. God must be very patient with us. Why? Well, one, He's stuck with His creation project through thick and thin for thousands and thousands of years. He's, he's stuck with it. He hasn't given up. He hasn't wiped the board clean and just started over. And secondly, he's been personally chosen to be personally involved with billions upon billions of people during that time span. So he didn't just sit back and say, you know what, humans, you're idiots. I'm just going to do gardening. I'm just going to keep the shrubs and trees and mountains and streams. I'm going to do the just creation part, but you guys are on your own. Have fun storming the castle. You're dumb. No. He says, no, I'm going to stick with the project, and I'm going to come closer and closer and closer still to my beloved humans. Although they reject me over and over again, I will come, and I will come closer to them. So he stuck with us. He stuck with the creation project. He stuck with us. God has really hung in there. He's really hung in there. He's never given up on us. This, my friends, is remarkable. This is remarkable. God loves us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to wade into this chaotic pool of humanity in order to save us. And not just to save us, but to reconcile us to Himself. How much more intimate is that? Not only did Jesus come to express God's love to us, He came, uh, he came to save us from our sin, save us from our idolatry, and then to bring us back to Himself, to reconcile us to Himself, to, so that we'd be part of His family. Why did He do this? Why did God do this? Why did God send Jesus? Why did He stick with this project for so long? Why has He done so? First, it's so that He would be glorified in all the earth, that every knee should bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That God would be glorified through His creation project. He'd be glorified in all the earth. And He would enjoy having a family. Did you think about this? That God enjoys you and me. He enjoys the idea of us being part of His family. 
I wasn't raised to, to think this way about God's love for us, but He wants you at home with Him, to be part of His family. How does that make you feel? He didn't send Jesus just to save you, but to bring you back home, to that place where you belong, reconciled to Him, but with Him forever. In His family, you and God hanging out, <laughs> hanging around with each other forever and evermore. Sounds a little weird, though, but if you read Revelation, this is the vision. Heaven and earth come together. The new city, the dwelling place of God, is now with His people. And all is right in the world. This is God's vision. That His dwelling place is now with His people. In fact, the whole idea of Jesus is expressed in the name foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Or Isaiah. This is when I wish I was British. Because British people get to say Isaiah. But I have to say Isaiah because I'm American. But the name foretold for Jesus uh, in Isaiah's prophecy means what? God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Look at this. Uh, uh, Matthew refers to, in the book of Matthew, it's referred here, um, uh, Matthew 1, 23. Look at that real quick. Um, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. But then that really is a reference to uh, Isaiah in uh, uh, 7.14. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Man, he's coming closer. He's coming closer and closer still. That God would come and He would be with us. That's remarkable. Over and over throughout Scripture and throughout history, God has gone to great lengths to prove Himself to us and to make a way for us to abide with Him. In the Old Testament, get this, I love this kind of this, this uh, framework of thinking. In the Old Testament, God the Father went before His people, leading them. Okay, Mount Sinai, the, the pillar, the cloud. God is before His people, leading them. But in the Gospels, He comes even closer. God the Son is with His people, teaching them, walking with them, teaching them. But then it doesn't stop there. You get into the rest of the New Testament, and what happens? Well, then there's God the Holy Spirit. Now God the Holy Spirit has come, and He has begun dwelling where? In front of? Beside? No, within. Now the Holy Spirit dwells within His people, guiding them, empowering them into the future. This means that those who trust in Jesus Christ now have the very Spirit of God abiding in them. The pillar of fire, the cloud by day, it's in you. Oh, wow. That should make you pause for a moment. Like, are you serious? That God is pleased to dwell, have His Spirit dwell in me? Oh, wow. Those who trust in Jesus Christ now have the very Spirit of God abiding in them, guiding them, directing them, comforting them, correcting them day by day. The same presence of God that shook Mount Sinai, that rained manna in the desert, that parted the Red Sea, it is alive in you. It is alive in you. Think of that. The same Spirit of God that guided Israel with the cloud and the pillar. It's, it's in you. It's in me today. But let's be honest. We are still human. We are very much 
like Israel. So we have to keep <laughs> our foot planted in that reality as well too, aware of it. And even those who trust in Jesus, um, even though those who trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit residing within them, uh, even though that Holy Spirit is actually giving them access to the mind of God, we still struggle. It's normal, part of the normal Christian experience to struggle in life. Uh, believe it or not, our situation is far better, our situation is far more intimate than, the, than Israel's, uh, than, than being led by the cloud or the pillar of fire. Really? Yeah, he's in us. He's not out there. He's right with us, in, in dwelling with us. Uh, yet, in the midst of that intimacy, in that betterness, we can still waver and we can still vacillate when it comes to trusting in God and trusting, uh, believing in what he says. So what should we do? What should we do in those moments? Well, this is where it might be helpful then to turn to Gideon, Gideon's story. Today we return to Gideon's story, which we read about starting in Judges chapter 6. What I appreciate about Gideon is how human he is, how real he seems. He's a, I get him. He's not this larger-than-life character. He's Gideon, uh, especially when he encounters God uh, in the midst of all his uncertainty and all of his fear. The words he says in that situation seem familiar to me. They seem something I can get, right? Um, God comes and he calls Gideon what? <coughs> Greetings, mighty hero. He calls Gideon a mighty hero and he promises that he will be with him. Hey, mighty hero, God is with you. God reveals that Gideon is going to or God reveals that he is going to use Gideon to do to liberate Israel, to liberate Israel from Midianite oppression. No that, that's a big deal. How long has Israel been oppressed by Midian? Seven years. So he says, hey, Gideon, I'm going to use you, mighty hero, to bring deliverance to Israel. I'm going to liberate Israel from Midianite oppression. God himself is sending you and will be with you. That should be pretty encouraging. That should be pretty empowering, right? But even in the midst of this eye-poppingly stunning encounter with God, Gideon still has doubts. At one level or, or another, Gideon is still choosing to cling to his feelings of overwhelm. He's still holding first to his, his defeated thinking, right? It's hard to break through that sometimes, even when God's right there. I am with you. It's like, are you sure? You know, he's still clinging to his doubts. I'm not sure. I'm not sure you're with me, even though you are with me right now. He clung to his feelings of overwhelm and his defeated thinking. We humans have a breathtaking ability to sit in the very presence of God and cling to our doubts. Cling to our doubts, to turn away from God's presence uh, thundering within us and cling instead to our golden cows. In that moment, when God encounters Gideon, he has more faith in the wine press. He has more faith, in, more, a sense of greater security in threshing his wheat and hiding than he does in the promise of God, in the power that is being offered to him in Jesus, the angel of the Lord, the Lord standing visibly in human form in front of him. He would rather take the security and the, uh, the promise of, of staying hidden in the winepress over believing and following what Jesus said. Okay, let's look at uh, Judges 6. Judges 6. We'll hear this story. Let's do 1 through 24, and then we'll skip over a section that we'll talk about next week and just go to that fleece part that you've all been waiting for. 
The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying the crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes came with their livestock, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts, and they arrived on droves of camels, too numerous, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare, so Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. And Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I have come back to bring you my offering. Bring my offering to you. And he answered, Okay, I'll stay here until you return. And Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat and with a basket of flour. He made some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on the rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And the angel of the Lord then disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Ophrah and the land and the clan of Ebezer to this day. Now, uh, skip over to uh, verse 33. Soon afterward... Uh, uh, I don't want to give away next week. No spoilers. Okay, verse 33. Soon afterward, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Ebezer came to him. He also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, and all of them responded. Then Gideon said to God, If you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, 
please do not be angry with me, but let me make one more request. This guy's pushing it, right? Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, God did as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. I know you've heard that story, but it's a weird one, right? I mean, Gideon, really? Seriously, <laughs> you've seen a lot happen already, and you're still backing up to this place of like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I just need a little more confirmation. It took some really supernatural signs from God to convince Gideon that, he was, that God was with him, that God had called him, and that God would enable him to do what he said. To be honest, Gideon's skepticisms and doubts in this story do make me a little bit uncomfortable. Anyone else? It's like, you're really pushing it, buddy. Makes me a little bit nervous. Um, uh, uncomfortable. While I certainly, as I've said, I understand his hesitancy and his humanness, I feel nervous around this story. I feel nervous around this story, and just because it's in the historical record of the Scriptures, we shouldn't take it as a theological truth, something we should emulate, right? Uh, not everything you see written about or recorded in Scripture is something we ought to do, and I think this is one of them. I always feel a little bit of a lightning rod, like, mm, you know, like, how about a fleece test, God? He's like, no. <laughs> you know, I, I feel nervous, and at least for two reasons. One, Gideon is questioning what God is saying to him, and he's just being really slow to believe, but secondly... He seems to clearly be testing God, right? He's testing God with this whole fleece business. Uh, maybe you, like me, were raised in a church where you were not encouraged to question God. You were not encouraged to test God, right? And where does this come from? Well, if you look at Matthew 4, 7, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, so you should not test the Lord your God. And that comes from Deuteronomy 6, 16. Thou shalt not test the Lord your God. <laughs> Don't do it. Yet Gideon's doing it. He's testing God. Question God at your own peril. That's what I was taught. I mean, at your own risk. Obey without question or else. Right? Was anyone else raised with that or else language in there? <laughs> Do it or else. Right? I mean, yikes. Gideon. But what does God do? Does he strike Gideon dead? Does he give him leprosy or, you know, uh, you know, uh, what? no. God is compassionate. God demonstrates a deep understanding of Gideon and of us in, in knowing his fears, knowing his inadequacy, his doubts, his skepticism. And he shows not wrath, not anger, but tenderness. He shows Gideon patience. He's patient with his fears and his doubts, his insecurity, his sense of inadequacy or inability. What does that teach us then? God's not eager for your demise. God wants to grow you to a place of belief and of deeper trust in Him. Uh, perhaps the Expositor's Bible Commentary can help us here, uh, maybe better understand what's going on. Uh, it says, Like Gideon, many a modern-day believer whose faith needs bolstering, we've done something like this. We've put out the fleece to help him find the Lord's will. Uh, if this fleece consists of a careful observation and interpretation of God's leading through circumstances, this procedure can be a healthy one. There are times when we do or we deeply desire to discern God's will. And this can be a healthy thing, not, not fleeces. I mean, don't do that. But, but, you know, we know what it's like. Like, God, 
give me a sign here. I need to know which way to go, whether it's a job situation, a, a career move, a family situation, a relationship choice, uh, things like that. We want to know, and it, cannot, it can be a healthy thing, but Gideon's method was to make purely arbitrary demands of God and insist on immediate guidance. In Luke chapter 1, verse 18, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he doubted the words of Gabriel, and what happened to him? He was stricken dumb. He couldn't talk until the baby was born. Uh, yikes. Dis but despite Gideon's lack of faith and insistence on a second sign, God in his mercy not only chose to withhold punishment, but he condescended to answer him. That in this, like, could, what could be an infuriating, kind of risky move, God condescends and says, I'll answer you. I know where you're coming from. I know what you're, 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 you're stuck in, and I will help you move forward. I'll do what it takes. I'll condescend. We must look carefully at this episode in Gideon's life with God, and we'll do more of that in the weeks to come. But there's much to learn from him uh, in both what to do and what not to do. I think that's the best approach to this. What did Gideon do that he did well that we can emulate and learn from? And then what are those things that we ought to be real careful around and maybe uh, understand about ourselves and, and, and surrender that to God to be transformed? But here's the key. I want you to go away with this today, okay? It is not our questions and doubts that offend God. Can I say that again? It is not your questions and your doubts that offend God. That's good, right? God's not afraid of your questions and your doubts. It is our obstinate unwillingness to trust Him when He has gone above and beyond to come to us, to meet us, to call us, and to send us to be a part of His mission in the world. When we choose to not believe, when we make a concerted, decided uh, choice that I will not believe, I will not trust, I will not go where you send me, so it's okay to have questions and to, okay to have doubts, but be careful because there's a, there's a, there's a, a point at which we start having a, what's called a stiff neck in the Bible or a hardened heart, an unwillingness, an obstinate unwillingness to trust God and to believe what He's told us to do. We are too quick, we are often too quick to cling to our seemingly rational arguments to venerate our doubts, to cling to these visible signs of proof and to end up making demands of God that go beyond all that He's already done to prove Himself to us, both in Scripture, but also in Jesus Christ Himself. We start saying, God, that's good and all. You're a revealed Word and uh, Jesus and all that, but I need a little bit more. Could I also get the fleece, <laughs> you know? We want, to, we want God to go above and beyond what He's already done. Ultimately, though, Gideon had a choice to make. Gideon had to choose whether or not he was going to believe God. He had to stop and just say, I've got to choose here. I've got to, I've got to believe God and I've got to stop putting food on the altar. I've got to stop putting fleeces on the ground. Eventually, who God was and what God said, it had to be enough for Gideon. He came to a point where he just had to decide, I will move forward believing this trusting in it, or I won't. There was a point where he had to decide. And that's the truth for us too. What else does God need to do? What else does God need to do to make us believe that He is with us? What else does God have to do to make us believe that He loves us and that He has called us to join Him in His mission? What more than Jesus Christ do you require? 
What more than Jesus in His life, His death, and His resurrection do you require in order for it to be enough? Man, I ask myself that question too some days. But what more do we need? God has gone to excruciating lengths in Jesus Christ to come and convince us that He's there. Convince us that He loves us, He cares for us, and He has called us to Himself, and He is sending us to be about His work in the world. What more do we need? What more than Jesus? Mighty hero, are you ready to trust? Are you ready to obey? Are you ready, like Gideon, to be called out and sent forth to do God's work in the world? I pray that you will be. Let's pray. Oh, Father, hear our prayers this morning. We are a, a frail and fickle people. We're not different than Israel, and I'm not different than Gideon. I'm given to doubts and to, to fears and to faulty thinking about you, about me. Uh, sometimes I'm unwilling to trust uh, the words you say, the words I find in Scripture, the words that uh, are confirmed by your Holy Spirit and by the godly men and women you've placed in my life. God, I, I'm sometimes stuck, and it's sometimes through obstinance. It's through idolatry. Um, it's through sin, but sometimes it's just through fear. God, I think of the people, my friends in this room, and I think of all the reasons why they may be hesitant to follow you, to surrender themselves more to you and to go where you send them. And I think it can include all of these things and more. Past hurts, disappointments, discouragement. Maybe it's hard to reconcile that a, the creator God of the universe, the God we read about in the Old Testament, could actually be a God of love and intimacy and closeness. But God, I pray that we would fix our gaze on the resurrected Christ. Hold that vision before us. Hear you speaking through Jesus in calling us back to yourself. Your word tells us that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus so that anyone who believes in him would be saved, would find life everlasting. That you did not come into the world. You did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God, I pray that we'd never get around that, that, that truth, that promise. Lord, be with us this morning as we wrestle. We identify some of the, 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 the golden cows of doubt, of skepticism, of selfish thinking uh, that have distracted us from you. I pray that you would set us free, convict us where needed, heal us where needed. But God, may we all look to Jesus Trust in the Holy Spirit that is within us. Grow us in our faith. Help our doubts turn into trust. A settled knowing that you are with us. Lord, I pray for my friends who've been following Jesus for a long time, and I pray that they would uh, make an accurate uh, assessment of themselves, that they would see clearly uh, their relationship with you, their willingness, their hesitancy. Um, and I pray also for my friends who've not followed Jesus before. I pray that they would hear that uh, um, you care for us and that you've called us to yourself and you sent Jesus to make that possible. And I pray that they would place their faith in Jesus today and that all of our faiths would grow deeper in Jesus today. We make this prayer in that name, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. We're going to worship a bit more. We're going to sing a song. And this is a time to be with the Lord, to sit, to turn your attention to Him, to acknowledge 
how he's been at work in your life, how he is at work in your life. And now acknowledge that presence that is in you through faith in Jesus. Listen closely. Maybe you need to pray with someone. If you do, I encourage you to find someone nearby to pray with. I'll be at the back. I'd love to pray with you. Uh, the, the front's open if you feel like you need to come and, and kneel and pray here. The thing is, what I'm trying to say is make the most of this opportunity. It's important. 